I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Scoopy Radio in your airwaves, on the plane, on the train, in the mall where you're doing your Christmas shopping, everywhere you need to be. I am Brandon Scoopy Robinson. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at ScoopB. Instagram and Snapchat at Scoop underscore B. And make sure you subscribe to the Scoopy Radio podcast, which is available on all platforms. You name it, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, TuneIn App, Stitch App, or simply by visiting ScoopBeatRadio.com. 3.5 million streams in 2018 and 2019. We're still counting them. But on the line right now is a guy who uh, knows all things basketball. He's written more than five dozen nonfiction books. But uh, most specifically about NBA icons, Kobe Bryant, uh, Michael Jordan Moore uh, on the line right now. We have Roland Lazenby. What's going on, sir? Uh, a whole lot. You know, everything's good. It's uh, warm in my house here uh, in the <laughs> cold weather. So uh, my dog's asleep here by the fire. So uh, it is extremely good. That's a good thing, man. Basketball is on the horizon, and uh, you caught my eye when we followed each other on Twitter uh, a couple years ago. You wrote a book. I think you like tweeted an article, tweeted an article or an interview or something I did, but you caught my eye because you are the author of Michael Jordan: The Life. Scoop, um, tell me, like, what was your muse for actually putting that pen to paper in that book? Well, I had the good fortune. I started doing books in the NBA back in the late 80s, about 88. And I had done a fair amount of college basketball work. Uh, I had written uh, two or three books of Billy Packer by that time, and I'd written about Ralph Sampson. And so I, uh, I started doing NBA work, and uh, it had been traveling a lot, you know. I, the books I did weren't big budget. They weren't paying me millions. Mm-hmm. They, You know, I so I had a Chevette diesel. got about 50 miles a gallon. I had press credentials, which were worth gold. At, uh, you know, Boston Garden uh, with the Pistons. Uh, 
all kinds of different uh, stuff. And then I added the Lakers. And from there, it just sort of built. And I was covering NBA games. And uh, I was just there at a wonderful time, you know. Uh, the NBA was wide open. Today, it's very crowded. You go to an all-star game. It's just, it's just a, a, a crowd, man, a huge crowd of reporters. You, you really don't get the chance to know people. You, it, it's crazy. But back in the eighties, um, man, what a wonderful time to start learning about the NBA and writing. And uh, then I got into doing the Bulls and. Uh, uh, you know, I got to spend lots of time watching the Bulls up close, writing about them, and I became real good friends, really good friends with Tex Winter, one of my mentors, and with uh, another one of my mentors, George Mumford, who was the team psychologist. And uh, so it was good. I, You know, from that, I then uh, got hired to do a book about the NBA Finals history, which meant that I got to go back and interview everybody, all the old timers. A lot of them have since passed. Mm-hmm. But the. Jack Haley. Yeah, Jack too, God rest Jack. But, you know, George Mike and Jim Pollard, I mean, back in the day. And then all through, you know, all, all those teams in the 50s and 60s and. And seventies before I got going in the eighties, but just the chance to do it all, and it was really, uh, you know, that that really changed my life. There, there are always things when you're a journalist you do that change your life. They change your ability to be able to talk to people. They uh, they they change what you understand. I often say that interviews do that for you. I uh, and I love doing interviews. I love talking to people about uh, their lives and their experiences, and I love talking to basketball folks. It's a lot of fun. Scoopy Radio on the line with Roland Lazenby discussing Michael Jordan uh, and his book, uh, Lazenby's book, uh, Michael Jordan: The Life. Um, looking at the biography, uh, it, it kind of stands out. There's three things in, in that in the in the first opening sentence uh, of the description. It says the shot, the shot, the flu game. Uh, Michael Jordan is responsible for sublime moments so ingrained in sports history. Uh, and, and as I'm taking a cursory look further down, uh, you talk about, or rather it talks about in the bio, about uh, you witnessing Jordan's growth from a skinny rookie to the instantly recognizable global ambassador for basketball. And then you talk about, it talks about the, the, the personal relationships with Jordan's coaches. If I may ask, um, do you think, did you take it from, I guess, from talking to Jordan and talking to people who are around him, did he seem like a more of an obsessive, compulsive guy or more of a, just a, a, an overachiever? What sense do you get of him and how he took his approach to the, to the game of basketball? Well, you know, sometimes um, there are just extraordinary people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, I coach a good bit, or I have, I don't anymore. But I uh, always used to tell my students, I'd ask them what they thought the most amazing quality Jordan had. 
And, of course, a lot of them would say he jumps on it. Obviously, that's a tremendous quality. But um, his ability to listen is like uh, it's unreal. It is eerie. And, um, you, you know, sometimes when we're in sports, you know, we assume this stuff just happens. It's just the way we are culturally. You know, the draft's going to come along. There are going to be some people. And, you know, some of them are going to be amazing, you know. But it's much more complicated than that. And um, so many of these people I do these uh, biographies on, they really drive the agenda. Yeah, they have uh, tremendous physical gifts and stuff, but they drive the agenda in a way that other people just don't. It just doesn't occur to other people uh, to push and uh, to be as aggressive and as as focused. And, I mean, just the mental acuity to to be on like that and to uh, just rise through everything is... uh, and I, I also am in. Uh, I have appropriate awe for all the the physical accomplishments. Um, sure. But I, you know, sometimes there are a lot of people. I won't say a lot because when you're dealing with NBA level players, you're dealing with freaks of nature in some mm-hmm. regards. You can go to the Y and play all the ball you want. You'll never see anybody approaching an NBA player. And I, I you know. I, when I used to play pickup, there would be uh, college-level players that were good. That would change things, of course, but never something like a, an NBA player. But there are a lot of them there who have a lot of physical gifts who are not obviously what what those certain top figures are. And they uh, the top, the very best, are people who are just totally different animals, different cats. They are uh, off the charts. Surely. And, and Jordan, with that ability to listen, that's why he started. And Dean Smith rarely ever started. He started Phil Ford as a freshman, I believe. Mm-hmm. But never had started anybody. But he was blown away by Jordan's ability to listen. And, of course, every time I do it, whether it's Jerry West, I'm doing a book on Magic Johnson now, Kobe Bryant, that I did uh, three years ago, they they all have this mental capacity that goes with everything else they got. And it's, it's not just... Um, it's not just book smarts. A lot of it is tremendous emotional intelligence. Uh, frankly, several kinds of intelligence, but uh, uh, it's the part I enjoy the most is looking and discovering everything that happened. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are nervous. They like to control their own narratives. They don't want all the stuff out about them. <laughs> they don't want, and I'm not talking about even dirt or anything like that. Right. Uh, 
they just are not motivated at putting every little piece of themselves out there for public consumption. And uh, that's easily un- understandable why. I mean, that's that's the one thing that truly have a lot of times are their private moments. Was that the case when you wrote the book about Michael Jordan? Well, you know, Michael had helped me. I'd, I'd done a bunch of books on the Bulls. I'd done their championship books. I had, uh, you know, the most amazing thing I ever saw was covering a game in Charlottesville when UVA was playing um, – was playing Carolina in 83. Jordan made the most amazing play. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, you know, I'd seen Michael a lot and I, I learned how to talk to him, you okay. know, uh, how to get access to talk to him. That in itself is, uh, that's a major thing. Uh, every, everybody who covers an NBA team and you, you know, that's the one thing I, I really wanted to do is to cover things at the highest level. But whenever you're covering something at a top level, uh, that's a strong environment. And you, you have to learn to be strong-willed yourself a little bit in that, that environment. You know, it's just, you you got to really be on your game. And so uh, it was great fun. I, I, the greatest player I ever saw Jordan make, Ralph Sampson was 7-4, played UVA. He, he and Jordan were both considered the best players in the country. And uh, UVA hadn't lost at home in forever. And Carolina got this great big lead on them. And then at the end of the game, UVA came storming back. And I, they got within a few buckets. And Ralph came down to take an elbow jumper from the left elbow. And Jordan was all the way down on the right block. He had, he had really gotten back, as he always could, to, to defend. And Samson went up to take this shot. And Jordan soared across, you know, diagonally across the lane and blocked that ball so hard, a jump shot from a seven-foot-four guy. He blocked that ball so hard he put up the sideline, you know, across press row. It scared everybody on press row. People jumped. It was wow. it was amazing. And uh, about 15 years later, I was it was before a game late in Jordan's career in Charlotte, and he was sitting there sipping a cup of coffee. I, I mean, sipping coffee out of a styrofoam cup. And I asked him about that. I said, do you remember that? He said, remember it. He said, how could I forget it? He said, man, he said, I surprised myself that day. And Terry Holland, who was coaching for UVA, started cheering when he did. He said it was such an amazing play that I caught myself and realized that I was clapping against my own team. I quit. But, you know, and so Jordan – has always done extraordinary things. And if, if you learn to converse with him, and this is a terribly long answer to your question. No, but, I'm enjoying the moment, man. Keep going. But if if you uh, are lucky enough to get the opportunity to converse with him, and it, it took quite a pre You know, I, I probably worked there around the Bulls a year. 
before I really got to where, and it required a whole strategy. But uh, so once that happened, then then Michael, you know, would uh, he enjoys talking basketball? He's uh, a bright, bright guy. I think he is. He he finds his own life to be as big a mystery as everybody else does. Wow, he's amazed by it. He was just a kid out of Carolina. He was not a. You know, he thought he was going in the Air Force or something. He didn't think he could start. He wanted to go to Virginia. He didn't think he could get on the floor at Carolina. And he was just such an unknown. And for his life to become what it has become, uh, you know, it's it's one of the all-time journeys. And not only that, he, he had all his people eager to follow along with him. And so when I was going to do this book, I'm getting around to answering your question. You got you know, it, brother. I uh, I went to him and shook his hand and told him what I was doing. And I wanted to ask him about his great-grandfather mm-hmm. because a big part of the book focuses on him. My goal when I do these books is to connect the past to the future. And that's not a comfortable thing to do. We have our racial history in this country, and for many reasons, people tend to want to forget that or to overlook it or to gloss it over. And I I just think that that history is important. I think the, the people I write about are not just basketball players. They become big uh, cor- uh, big uh, corporate and cultural figures on the global stage. Uh, my Jordan book's in 16 or 17 languages. He's important to people all over the world. And so his story and the story of his, his family coming off the coastal plain of North Carolina, the things they endured, um, when I wrote about Jerry West, I did a book before I did Jordan on Jerry West. I did it for ESPN books. Mm-hmm. I, I, I connected because my old man was one of these two handed set shooters out of the hills, uh, Southern West Virginia. He played semi pro ball. He, 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 you know, just was a basketball maniac, but this was back in the thirties. Back then they had a center jump after every basket. If you came down and hit, hit a shot, and they all took these big, long, two-handed set shots. If you knocked mm-hmm. one down, then they immediately went to center court and jumped the ball up again, which is sort of like a soccer match. Right. And, and so, um, it, you know, just um, when I did the Jerry West book, I wanted my old man was from West Virginia. West was there. It was nothing but a bunch of a lot of poor hillbillies and poor immigrants and all kinds of people living up in the hills working in those uh, coal mines. And I wanted to tell their story. And just like I wanted to tell the story of the sharecroppers and the moonshiners 
who were Michael Jordan's family. And, uh, um, you know, because some of the things they did in some ways were the equivalent of an NBA trophy. I know that sounds ridiculous. I'm listening. But, but <laughs> actually, you know, the trophy uh, is probably the ridiculous part of it. The things that Jordan's people did in real life. That's probably the real trophy. But anyway, it shows you who folks are. Well, nobody's just born in a bubble. Mm-hmm. We're all the product, as you well know, and as all your listeners know, we're all the product of our family. A lot of times, we don't know who our family is. And uh, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. I mean, one of these days, when I get through doing everybody else's family story, I need to try to figure out who all these old hillbillies were <laughs> down here that I'm descended from, you know, and uh, uh, the people down here in the mountains, because it's uh, it's a powerful part of the story. I think it's particularly important for African Americans, though, uh, because. Their story is the, the, yeah, we got the American Revolution and we got this and we got that. But the quintessential American story is African American. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, I mean, anybody who looks at history with any kind of impartial view knows that that story, that journey, is what defines this country. It defines freedom, and so it uh, it defines the essence of all of us. I don't care if you're green or pink polka dot or black or white. It defines us in the USA, and it has. We fought wars over it. We've ripped this country apart over it. We have done the dumbest stuff and most evil stuff in the world that can be done over it. And so uh, it is... Number one, and I just think it's silly to divorce basketball from that. Hmm. Some people will get tired because the Jerry West story went on for years. Jordan's story, his great-grandfather was an amazing story. He was 5'5 five, five and crippled and a moonshiner and a sharecropper. And he was a badass. Hmm. He, he, was, and he worked on the river before they had highways. They had uh, river barges where they moved all the goods and stuff. And I found it interesting that Jerry West people were roughnecks on the river and that Michael Jordan's uh, great-grandfather was, and family members before him were river. The, the guys doing all the work on the river, it was a dangerous work. And they were roughnecks, a lot of tough guys, you know, that uh, some of them former slaves, some of them slaves. And so um, uh, it's just interesting to see the evolution of this persona in the families. Uh, Jordan's uh, grandfather on his mother's side was a rough dude. He was a sharecropper. He was not a pleasant man, but he was all about business and nobody. You know, I I found this 
report on sharecroppers in North Carolina from 1922 at the height of 20th century racism uh, by the North Carolina Board of Agriculture was in a library down there. I wanted to find out about sharecroppers. And they had a report in 22 that said, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, nobody who ever, and there was a lot of white sharecroppers too. It didn't matter if you were African-American or black, and they interviewed 10,000 farmers, black and white. It was a great study, and it said it didn't matter. You weren't going to – the system was rigged. You weren't going to get anywhere. You were going to live your life in debt. You are going to have to borrow money to eat, even though you were a farmer. Yeah. And it was it was going to be very tough. And this, this was – the only job for 99% of African Americans and for a huge percentage of the white population, they're just, you know, they were just landless farmers. They didn't own anything. They rented the mule. They rented everything. And Jordan's grandfather on his mother's side, and they lived in like two, three room shacks, you know, 10, 12 people at a time sometimes. And they had, uh, you know, outdoor and, and the health I went through the health records and the death records and the death of uh, – and I was doing this during the Obama push for health care. Mm-hmm. And when I, I said, I can help this guy sell the bill. If you go back, I was going into these North Carolina counties like back in 1910 and 1915 and uh, just looking at all the deaths and going through and reading the death certificates. Right. Because uh, this, there was, you know, the, they lived, their water came right next from the, next to the outhouse, you know, it was just it was brutal circumstances and the, the poverty was incredible. But Jordan's grandfather on his mother's side came to win his own land, to own it. To have saved and bought, and he worked all these jobs, and nobody did this. Nobody in the population could do it. But he came, he came to have a bigger house. Uh, the difficulty of that, you know, we make a lot over basketball today, but the mm-hmm. difficulty of becoming that guy to win, to win the day when the day was as rigged as it could be. Is uh, yeah. that's that's pretty astounding. And so you you have a guy like Jordan. He doesn't just happen. In my mind, he's the product of generations. And if you just look at it, you say, "Oh, those are average people." Hmm. You 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 don't do what his grandfather did by being an average person. <laughs> you, you do not do that. And the degree of difficulty on their lives. None of us today could handle it. We couldn't be who those people were. And so, you know, connecting that to these this family background, and Jordan idolized his great-grandfather. He lived with him for like the first seven or eight years of his life. When I asked Michael about him, when I told him I was doing the book, I was stunned. A, a tear came down his cheek. And uh, it, uh, Michael did not want to participate. He got pissed off at me for doing it. But uh, but they're all uh, Larry Bird, same way. They're all like that stuff. They, and I, you know, I understand it. 
but I, I, I think it's important to tell the stories and the response from readers is, uh, and uh, you know, some of it helps explain, and in Kobe's case, there were things uh, I wasn't, you know, I was trying to be tough on Kobe and, uh, you know, I was in some spots, I guess, not too much. But everywhere I turned, I found things that, and I've, I've known Kobe, you know, since he was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, astounded at, at how badly people wrote stuff about him like he was and his family like they were some sort of, um, I, I don't know how to describe it. People who were getting something they didn't deserve, I guess, is maybe one way. Or, or cutting corner. There was none of that. But, you know, they, 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 they were assuming that Kobe and his father were plotting to make him a Laker, for example. They didn't have any idea about that. They didn't say anything to anybody. What happened is, and Kobe didn't even think, of, I mean, he liked Michael Jordan. But he didn't think about, you know, being exactly like Jordan and shaving his head and all that stuff. That happened because Adidas discovered him and thought he could be the next Jordan and told his AAU coach that and then began, you know, sort of pushing that agenda. And suddenly, what do you do when you got a 15-year-old kid you tell him he's the next Jordan? Well, the next thing you know, he's shaving his head and he's studying the tapes. And you know, if that's going to be his job, he better he better know what it is. And so everybody assumed this, you know, that that Kobe was, you know, some kind of uh, I don't know what the vibe was with Kobe, but it was it was negative, if you recall. If uh, even in Philly, it was negative, like he was. Uh, trying to jump line. I think that's probably sort of the attitude that Kobe and his family were trying to jump line at the cafeteria or something, you know, trying to get in front of people. I I know Rick Fox told me that when Kobe came to the Lakers as a teenager, they, you know, they're all veterans working hard for their money, and they thought, here's this kid that's shoving in front of us. And so it created, and he never once bothered to say, Man, I wasn't planning any of this. This stuff just happened to me. Yeah. Now he he was planning by virtue of working as hard as he did and mm-hmm. being as smart as he was, but he wasn't you know, he wasn't out there scheming. I think Kobe was ahead of his time. Um, when you really look at it. Um you look at today's NBA, uh many players are second generation ball players. You look at Clay Thompson, son of Michael, you look at Steph Curry and, and Seth Curry, sons of, you know, Del Curry. Uh, you, you even look at Kyrie Irving, uh, who I think in some aspects reminds me of, of, of Kobe and this fact that, you know, Kyrie's father was known in the New York City uh, basketball circuit, did not make it to the league, but was known, you know, knew the Mario Ellie's of the world. His godfather's Rod Strickland um, played at Boston U and, you know, and then his mom died and his dad took care of him and his sister. But I'll say this, I spent some time with Kobe's dad, uh, Joe Jellyby Bryant in, in Dallas, Texas some years ago. Um, and, you know, we talked about our journey 
Um, and, you know, I started as a kid at 12 doing radio with the Nets. And, you know, Kobe was a child prodigy. Spent time with, you know, his dad overseas and, you know, living in the Philadelphia mainline area. I went to school out that way. So there was a connection there with Kobe's father and myself. Um, what I found was with Kobe being ahead of his time and all he liked, live, breathe, eat, sleep was basketball. He didn't really socialize with a lot of those older veterans on the Lakers at the time. And, you know, Shaq was an icon at the time. You, you may mention of Rick Fox and some of the things he said. I think a lot of the older veterans were threatened by him because they saw something in him that they didn't have themselves. In my book, my book really gets into that because they were, they were, very threatened by him and very intimidated. And that was hard for a lot. You know, that's hard for a 28, 29-year-old man who's proud of himself, has achieved a lot, you know, is making nice money playing basketball. And here's uh, 17, then 18. He was 17 when he got drafted. And, yeah, I wrote so much about Jelly Bean because I had to explain all of that. You know, Jelly Bean was, uh, and you're absolutely correct, Kobe's ahead of his time. And Jelly Bean was ahead of his. Hmm. And Jelly Bean was an incredible player. I rebuilt his career and went through all of it. But he had a couple of bad things happen in Philly. He, uh, he had a real crazy chase scene with the cops and then a bad wreck and uh, cocaine charges and stuff against him. And, uh, but he had tremendous good fortune too on the other side of things. But Jelly Bean was South Philly and, um, it, it was interesting. His father, Big Joe Bryant mm-hmm. was, was fascinating. But Jelly Bean was, uh, you know, he played for Paul Westhead at, at LaSalle and Jelly Bean, you know, was six nine and could handle. I mean, he he was a very fluid player with a lot of bounce, but they nobody wanted that. Westhead let him play that way at LaSalle because Westhead loved the up tempo game and Jelly Bean was the point guard half the time at six nine. Mm-hmm. But the NBA wasn't gonna do it. And uh you know, Jelly Bean's hero was always magic. But Jelly Bean uh, played eight in the league and then eight over in uh, Europe. And so it was, it was a lot of fun to trace all of that and to go back and dig up all the stuff. You know, it was a great help for me in doing that book. What was The uh, archives of the Philadelphia Tribune. Mm. Because, uh, because I wanted to trace who Kobe's people were. And I was able to to go back in and find the amazing things they'd done. But you wouldn't find any of that in the mainstream papers. Uh, one of the greatest archives, one of the most powerful, important things that I've run into in doing all my work are all the uh, African-American papers around the country. So many of them are struggling today. Others are not. But like all newspapers, so many of them are struggling. But the archives of all those stories. Mm-hmm. And and it's like when I went down to do the Jordan book. And uh, when a library started reading the history books, you start with those books. You wouldn't even know African-American people existed. <laughs> and so 
so I, I, I was sitting in a library down there, and I went over and asked the librarian about it when I was doing the Jordan book. And uh, she said, well, my father's over in the hospital, but he's uh, he's 85. Uh, you can go over and talk to him. He knew the Jordans. And the guy had been a... Uh, he had been a he'd been raised by a sharecropper, was a sharecropper himself. But he, his father made him go to school, and he ended up being a history professor at uh, North Carolina Central. And this guy, I mean, I spent hours sitting there listening to him explain to me North Carolina. And so the African-American newspapers have a record of things. It is a record of things. And uh, the mainstream media sometimes would cover things, but not much. Not not the way it should have been covered. So there's all kinds of ways to unlock that important history I've found. And it really changes. The, the one thing I want to add, because... Um, as you know, the family story, it changes all the stories in basketball. Hmm. Uh, it's a different context form. It, it, it changes so many things. And that was true with Jerry West. It's true with Michael George, true with Kobe. It's true now that I'm writing about Magic Johnson. The, uh, you you get to understand the families. You get to understand the history of the families, the places they came from, and what they went through. And and that just takes you right through the the families of today of the players. And uh, you, you know, obviously, you can't spend but a portion of the book on that background. But but it helps to understand. It's amazing what you find as you start digging into family background. That's real. Scoopy ready on the line with Roland Lazenby talking all things basketball. You you mentioned Tex Winter, uh, who I'm fascinated with. Tex Winter, former Chicago Bulls assistant uh, during Phil Jackson, Michael Jordan era. Uh, Will Purdue, former Bull, told me a story one time. He told me about. Um, how when uh, the Bulls were on a team flight, uh, Wilper, uh, rather Tex Winter had a, a grocery bag. And while they were on the team flight flying somewhere, he dumps it out. And he's like reading all his mail. So Wilper do asks him, he says, what, uh, Tex, what are you doing? He goes, I'm selling out Publishers Clearinghouse. I'm trying to win money. He's like, bro, you're the assistant coach to Chicago Bulls. Why are you trying to win Publishers Clearinghouse? And, you know, it was a big joke on the plane. Uh, what was Tex Winter like? Oh, Tex, man, he was, uh, he changed my life. Um, Tex was a child of the Depression. He, uh, he ended up in California going to school, but he was originally from Texas. And so that's how he was nicknamed Tex. His name was Fred, Maurice Fred Tex Winter. And he he uh, was in the military, World War II, was a pilot. Um, he, he came back from the war, 
and went to USC and played for Sam Barry, who had the, and Bill Shulman played with his teammate. Um, they uh, and one of Alex Hannum was another. Those three guys played at Southern Cal. They all became NBA coaches. And Tex never played in the NBA, but he did play uh, a little bit of junior college ball against uh, Jackie Robinson. And so uh, Tex, uh, from his college days, he was a pole vaulter. Tex just crazy, but brilliant. And he he developed Sam Barry's sideline triangle, uh, uh, sideline opposite, center opposite offense into the triangle. And he created a system, a whole new set of fundamentals. Uh, and it's a read offense. It's a read and react. But Tex was the only guy really who, who could stand up to Phil Jackson or stand up to Michael. You know, Tex would challenge either one of them, you know. And the, the great story is of uh, Shaq flying down the sidelines in a Lakers practice, and he and Tex used to go at it. Tex would challenge. Tex jumps out in front of him to take a charge, and everybody there's like, this old guy's going to get killed out here. <laughs> and, you know, and Jordan would come back at him. Tex would be out there talking on stuff. And Jordan would come up behind him and, Pull his uh, pants down, you know, his shorts, and his, and there would be Texas bare butt hanging out of his jock strap. And so those <laughs> two would, would go back and forth. That I mean, and Tex was just—it's like Johnny Bach, who was the other older assistant coach with the Bulls, who was really tight with Michael, said, you know, Tex believed in the triangle offense. Like he believed in the gospel pages, wow. like somebody else would believe. And, and Tex was, uh, but I, you know, I, 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 uh, I had a AU team that was pretty good, and I got to know Tex, and he gave me his book, and so I ran the triangle with my AU team. We went to Division One Nationals and brought him a trophy. We didn't win it all, but we finished like. Uh, third in the shootout, which was like, I don't know, top 15. But uh, it, it was running the triangle. You know, I broke it down and made it real simple. I was working with 12-year-old girls. And I had two really good post players. You know, the triangle's a good post offense. But I wanted to run it so that I would be smart enough writing about it. And the only way you can really learn an offense or really learn is to coach. And, you know, I could call Tex all the time. And he was excited because I, I really uh, attacked it at a different level. I wasn't just – I wasn't just uh, sort of writing about it without really understanding it, which is what happened a lot. There were a lot of people who – Obviously, didn't understand the triangle, but basically, the triangle involved filling the corner. Uh, you know, it was a two guard front instead mm -hmm. of a one guard front. You know, the one guard front we have today, the point guard at the top of the floor, 
somebody come up and set a screen. And that's fine. The triangle, you could go into all kinds of looks. The Lakers uh, won um, won a championship running the uh, screen and roll out of the triangle. But um, but it's a two-guard front. And, you know, you come up and you make the first pass, and one of the guards cuts through to the corner. Say the one of the two guards in the two-guard front cuts over to the three-point area in the right corner. Well, the idea always was that created an unbalanced floor. Hmm. And that meant that they had, if you had, let's say if you sent Steve Kerr over to the corner, a real good shooter, that meant you had to have a defender go over there with him. And what that meant is that if you had Kobe or Michael over on the opposite side, on the weak side of the floor, then you could um, you could make it really hard to double team them, and they could operate. And especially if they were quick getting the basket, they could get that you know that all kinds of things. And of course, that was just the fundamental look of it with Jordan and Kobe guys like that, superior offensively on the weak side where the double teams weren't available. And they had learned to operate within that format, but both those guys you know, elevated the triangles beyond what anybody had ever really done with it by their, you know, their superior presence, not just in scoring the ball and stuff, but just in figuring out all the little ways that it worked. And uh, so Tex was, that's a very long answer, but Tex uh, was the guy for me. He um, he gave me a quality of information. The guy couldn't tell a lie. He, he, I, I said that I learned, I figured out how to deal with Jordan. Tex would explain to me everything going on. And so I didn't waste time with BS questions with Jordan. You know, it'd be things like, uh, I remember the first time I wanted to break through. I was traveling with, uh, you know, following the team and uh, went up to Toronto I I had begun to notice the pattern. Um, mm-hmm. Pippen, Pippen would come out of the shower first, and all the media in the locker room would just go like moths to a flame. And they would all go there, all the Klieg lights and all the microphones, and all the reporters with the notepads would be over there interviewing Pippen. And it would usually be maybe a minute, 90 seconds later, here would come Jordan out of the shower. And everybody would have their back, and I would maybe have enough time to walk across the locker room. And suddenly they'd turn around and see there, and they'd all come. And it would, then it would be insane. And, but, I, you know, I would, I would have a question I'd want to ask him. And so I'd have that one question ready that Tex had explained some things to me. Mm-hmm. And, and so then that meant, you know, he – he Jordan was just he knew it was amazing. He knew everybody in that room. Somebody new come in, he'd immediately pick up. He could he was just so alert. He was so alert. Tex was already in his late sixties by the time he got to coach Jordan. And Tex coached Jordan longer than anybody, but uh, you know, Tex you would think wasn't intimidated, but Tex always said I was I was intimidated by his presence from the very start. And uh, that, you know, that, that 
that give and take between the two of them was it, it, it wasn't warm and fuzzy, but it, it, you know they they both had a high appreciation for each other, and um, so Tex was that guy that. And he, you know, he would just discuss things. Frankly, there was a lot of deceptive stuff around those Bulls teams. A lot of conflict. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of mind games played by Phil Jackson. (laughs) A lot of, uh, and that's the name of my Phil, the Phil Jackson biography. I did is Mind Games, and uh, just. just amazing stuff. And so Tex, uh, you know, it was Jerry Krause versus the rest of the Bulls, the general manager. And Tex was very close with Jerry Krause, but he was very close with everyone else, too. And Tex <laughs> sort of was very honest about all of them. And... Uh, you know, Tex just tried to be a, a very honest guy, and he he was uh, he was a gold mine. You know, when you're working as a journalist, you'll run into people that can really change the course of your life just because. And I well, I taught college journalism, so I would, I began this thing called the best minds principle, and I would always tell this to my students. Whenever I make a talk today, I talk about best minds. And that's the wonderful thing about your profession. You you can track down the best minds in basketball, but I, I, I just use it best minds in any given field. You use your blog or whatever you're doing to try to get a chance to interview the very top people. Mm-hmm. And you make them your colleagues in that process. And I, I only, it only occurred to me after the fact. I interviewed a lot of people by then, but nobody changed my life like Tex Winter did at that time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.